I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? Hello and welcome to another edition of Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show. I am Philadelphia Daily News Sports columnist David Murphy. Joined this week by nobody because Mike Sielski is up in upstate New York running around reporting a story that I'm sure he will do a bang-up job on because he always does. But we move on and Les Bowen will attempt to fill the void of Mike's absence. He is going to join me in just a few moments via phone from Mobile, Alabama where he is covering the Senior Bowl, as he always does this time of year. We're also going to talk to Keith Pompey about these crazy, crazy 76ers who on Tuesday managed to beat the Clippers without the services of Joel Embiid. We're going to talk about Ben Simmons, his foot, his projected return, and what the Sixers expect out of him once they do return. We're also going to look ahead to the free agent market next year where the Sixers could be in the market for a couple of shooters, as for Les, he has done a bang-up job on the Senior Bowl for the last decade, and he is going to kind of pull back the curtain for us and tell us what it's like on a daily basis on the ground level as the entire NFL scouting establishment descends on Mobile. We will also talk about Howie Roseman, Jeffrey Lurie, Joe Douglas, and the new balance of power in this Eagles front office in what is really the first full offseason of this new-slash-old regime. So, without further ado, it's my great pleasure to welcome in Les to our humble little podcast here at 801 Market. Well, Les joins us from the beautiful Spring Hill Suites in Mobile, Alabama. And Les, you were, we were just talking off air a uh, couple minutes ago, and you were saying that you find the Eagles' approach to Joe Douglas and Howie Roseman uh, in the run-up to the Senior Bowl uh, something different from years past, and, and you're scheduled to talk with them at some point, correct? Yeah, that's the big thing today for the uh, Philadelphia media contingent is that we're supposed to talk to Howie and Joe for the first time about the draft process. We really haven't had much contact with Joe since he was hired. Uh, he's done some things in other media, but he hasn't really answered questions from us. Um, yeah, the, what they did, uh, or what they've done in a couple of forums is kind of make it uh, a deal where they sort of acknowledge that Nobody's that excited about Howie Roseman's uh, drafting record and that, uh, you know, here's this new guy, Joe Douglas, who uh, is going to keep Howie from uh, making the mistakes of the past, uh, which is kind of an interesting way to frame it. And, uh, you know, you'll, we'll have to see. They've had this kind of set up before. I mean, Joe Douglas is basically what Tom Gamble was, what – Ryan Grigson once was to Howie. Uh, the issue might not be who's doing the personnel evaluating, but who's making the final choice when when push comes to shove. Yeah, I mean, and that's I mean, Howie said that during his year-end press conference after lauding Joe Douglas and and everything that he's brought to the organization thus far. He then did finally admit at the end of the day, the personnel department is his responsibility and he will be the one making final decisions. So I guess the question Eagles fans would have is, has anything really changed? We don't know. We're, we're very eager to find out. They're, 
really touting this collaborative process, you know, which they've done in the past. And, and we talked about this when last year when Halley came back into power, it sort of muddled things again. For one year, even though it was a disastrous year, we had some clarity. We knew that Chip Kelly was actually the guy to blame uh, in all personnel matters. Uh, previously, it had been, well, there's Howie, and there's there's Andy Reid, and there's, you know, for a, for a long time, Joe Banner. I think Joe's fingerprints were on some of the things that they did in drafts when they really reached for need because they wanted to get rid of some some guys that they didn't want to pay on the roster. Uh, you know, it was it was really murky as to what was driving some of the decisions. And now we're kind of back in that murky sphere. I don't think Doug Peterson has the kind of clout that Andy Reid had as coach. But, you know, what's Douglas's idea? What's Howie's idea? How much is Jeffrey Lurie involved? That's, this is something that's kind of come up recently. Uh, a lot of people say it was Jeffrey who kept uh, – the quarterback's coach, uh, DiFilippo, from interviewing with the Jets. Well, the Eagles denied uh, the Jets' permission to speak to him to be their offensive coordinator. So, again, we're kind of in a, in a real uh, not quite sure who's calling the shot sort of situation, but it is ultimately Howie's responsibility and ultimately Jeffrey's responsibility. Well, since you mentioned it, and I haven't really – heard much about it since it happened the DiFilippo thing what is standard protocol with that I mean do, do organizations usually allow position coaches to interview for coordinator jobs or not really it's kind of case by case uh, certainly that's sort of the the overall tone is that if it's a promotion for a guy you tend to let him interview uh, we don't really know exactly why the Eagles didn't I can think of several things, one being that they've changed quarterback coaches every year for like the last four years because Chips kept leaving to become offensive coordinators. And with Carson Wentz and his development being the, the prime focus of the organization, maybe they just didn't feel like making another change there. Um, another possibility is, I mean, I don't know if I were DiFilippo that I'd be all that fired up about going to the Jets to be offensive coordinator for Todd Bowles, who has, you know, one more year and done written all over him right now. <laughs> you know, um, it's a move up, but I don't know where that leaves you in another year with no quarterback. <laughs> uh, I don't know that it's going to be the tremendous career boost that you might hope it would be. So, you know, who really knows what happened there or what DiFilippo's uh, level of enthusiasm was for this position. Uh, we don't get to talk to him very often, but it was an interesting twist. And the fact that it allegedly came from Jeffrey was an interesting twist. Uh, Doug Peterson doesn't certainly seem like the kind of guy who would stand in the way of any of his – having been an assistant in the NFL, you know, he seems pretty attuned to uh, – to letting guys move up and stuff like that. Uh, I'd love to be able to talk to Jeffrey about that, but obviously that hasn't happened. Is that something, How a, a question Howie Roseman would answer? Oh, we're going to ask him uh, whether he'll answer it or not. It's, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful question. I don't know. I, you know, we're, we'll have to see. This is a very meta conversation, me asking you, if Howie will answer the questions that you're going yeah. to ask him <laughs> later on today. 
But yeah, that's it, kind of what we're left with at this point in time. What What's your sense on how involved Lurie is? And I guess the second part to that question is, is his involvement separate from Roseman's involvement, or is Roseman essentially – is he involved through Roseman? Yeah, that's a good question. I There was a time when I sort of – when Chip – especially when Chip first showed up before Chip took control of personnel, I kind of saw Roseman as – as Lurie's conduit, you know, that mm-hmm. Chip didn't like uh, dealing with people that much and that, you know, he wasn't one to go babysit the owner and that this was kind of Howie's job to be the go-between. Uh, I don't really know. Jeffrey, as has been written, you know, Jeffrey's 65 years old now, and I think the nub of all this is when he bought this team, he was in his early 40s, and I know he thought that if he built a practice facility and built a stadium, two things the Eagles had never had, and provided some stability and some money and and tried to back the right values and the right, you know, uh, ideas, that he would win a Super Bowl. And it hasn't happened, and I think it really bothers him. Uh, fans have this perception that it doesn't, but I, I'm sure that's wrong. Um, that doesn't mean that he has any idea about how to get one, but I know that he wants one very badly, and he's – I don't know that he's – he was always involved probably more than people thought, but I think the last few years, especially since the Chip Kelly thing turned into a disaster, I think he feels like he needs to be in on everything, and he needs to have his ear to you know every decision that comes up, whether he ultimately – makes the decision or just endorses someone else making it. I think he wants to know everything that's going on in his organization and wants to be very, uh, you know, putting his thoughts out there and, and uh, making sure everybody understands uh, his priorities. Well, he's also a 65-year-old baby boomer, and when you've already got the Tesla and the new wife, you only have so many options for your midlife crisis uh you know maybe that's right yeah. <laughs> maybe that's what this is i mean like you said what, what's the point of owner what's the point of owning a team if you're not going to have fun with it you know uh maybe yeah. maybe it's a who knows uh but there's definitely yeah. a different set of footprints i think as you noted um through the novacare complex than there were over the last few years and i think that's been like a that, that's been the most puzzling thing for me is trying to figure out where the kind of power dynamics stand and whether howie is you know you know, when Jeffrey's involved, is is Howie just kind of doing his bidding? Uh, you know, Howie talked – one of the interesting things to me, I don't know if you you picked up on it in his year-end press conference, but he said definitively, Howie, I'm talking about, kind of I am the one who really liked the quarterback position or prioritized the quarterback position. And I know there was a lot of thought that that was Jeffrey, and, and I don't know, it just seems like a very muddled way um, to do business. I guess so, yeah. I, I don't really know. I, I think that all grew out of Howie's year away from personnel where he went to the mountaintop and and discovered that having a franchise quarterback was the secret to the NFL, you know, or and, and he came back with that as his driving principle. Uh, I don't know if, if Jeffrey was as, on that as he was initially or, or Jeffrey had to be sold on it or, or what the dynamic of that was we don't get to talk to Jeffrey enough to 
to have any sense of these things. But certainly Jeffrey embraced that idea very quickly, and they made the move up to Carson Wentz. And Jeffrey was actually uh, willing to go to North Dakota and have dinner, which, uh, you know, that's not a place Jeffrey usually finds himself. Well, let's talk about the Senior Bowl, because I was sitting on social media on Twitter the other day, and and the annual pictures from the meat market, Mm quote-unquote, Yesterday, yeah. Yeah, started appearing on my timeline. And every year you look at these pictures, and at least I think, and I feel like some other people on Twitter think, I'm not sure that it's an event that translates well to the digital age, um, given the kind of dehumanizing, you know, particularly in the area of the country where it's being held, you know? Oh, I know. I Believe me, I've had that conversation several years ago. I was at the weigh-in. That's what we're talking about here is the Senior Bowl weigh-in where they have, uh, there's this giant convention hall, and there's hundreds of NFL scouts and personnel people and media, uh, some sitting in chairs, others just standing. uh, And there's a a stage and a couple of guys with microphones, and each uh, participant in the Senior Bowl walks up on the stage wearing uh, pants and no shirt whatsoever, and is measured and weighed, and these numbers are called out uh, as the uh, magnified image of his torso is uh, is flashed on a screen behind the stage. And uh, years ago, I I was happened to be standing next to Deuce Staley, who was then and now the Eagles' running backs coach, and I said, "Gee, you know what this reminds me of?" And Deuce said, "A slave auction," <laughs> and I said. Yes. Yeah. But uh, it's part of the deal. I don't get why it's public. You know, I, I guess I guess there's some value t- for these personnel guys actually seeing the guy standing up there and seeing whether it's a solidly packed 280 pounds or a, uh, boy, this guy is 40 pounds overweight, 280 pounds. Uh, it, it is very strange. And I... Yeah, we always ask the players about it, but they've been they've been so coached by their agents, and they're so eager to start making money that to them it's just okay. Got to do this now. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's it's it, it's one of those things that inside the bubble of the NFL, I guess, it doesn't uh, seem as bizarre as it does outside. Yeah, and I I mean that's a fair that's a fair argument, and these kids, I mean, they are used to you know maybe they're honest. I mean, it's it's they do you know, walk around dressed like that after games as reporters mill around and, you know, they've constantly having cameras pointed at them and, you know, they really are objectified, you know, throughout college, you know, by their fans, right. by, by their student bodies. And, and again, nobody's suggesting that there really are any, you know, grave undertones to this thing. It's more about mm-hmm. just the, the, the way it translates when you see, right. I mean, there was, you know, everyone probably remembers the Tim Tebow, picture which was more humorous than anything Tebow up there you know in compression shorts yada 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 but there was one yesterday where it was like a wide shot and you just see like these rows and rows and rows of uh you know men sitting here fully clothed with with notepads and this line of of football players wearing compression shorts and nothing else and I I, you know it just you know it for for, the fact that everybody needs to write it down I mean it's all going to be on the website in an hour Anyway, but you got like Brian Dawkins very studiously sitting there with a printed list and a 
pencil and writing down six four two thirty two. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's just odd. It really is. I, I I I remember last year when Tyler Matikevich, the Temple linebacker, was coming out and. Uh, I talked to him after the weigh-in. That's one good thing about the weigh-in for the media is we can talk to people nice. afterward, which uh, is a nice little, you know, it's kind of an informal setting. There's usually not that many interviewers. So, you know, so I was talking to Tyler Matikevich from Temple, and he was so relieved that he had been six feet tall. <laughs> he was thinking he might come in at like 5'11 and three quarters or something and that that would be a big hindrance to him being drafted in the NFL. The Russell Wilson <laughs> line. I was thinking, like, do you grow your hair longer and get it spiked? You know, I mean, how do you, how do you address your height between the end of the college season and the and the weigh-in? Do you do you hang upside yeah. down? You go to the monkey bars and you hang upside down. <laughs> it's amazing. But, uh, Tyler Matikavich was six feet tall and he was drafted by the Steelers, so it was a good weigh-in for him. So what you mentioned the access. I'm curious about – I've never been to the Senior Bowl. I've never actually been to Alabama, and it might be one of those states that I never actually end up in because I'm not sure when I would ever <laughs> have the excuse to go there. Um, but how has it ch- has it changed at all since you started covering the team? I know, I mean, you've always been kind of in the modern era, but not necessarily mm-hmm. the you know satu- oversaturated yeah, social media You know, media when I first era. started covering the Eagles, I never came here because the main reason to come here for us is access to Eagles people. I mean, our market isn't a huge college football market. People aren't this early in the draft process. People aren't all over whether some wide receiver from, you know, uh, Texas is, uh, it, you know, a good third-round option or something. It, it, I, and when I first started the Eagles, they were always in the NFC Championship game. And if your coaches get that far, they usually don't come to the Senior Bowl. They usually just leave that to the scouts. So Andy Reid was never here. Uh, Joe Banner was wouldn't be here during those years. And you know, but then when the Eagles started missing the playoffs and going out earlier in the playoffs, uh, suddenly I started coming. Probably a decade or so ago. And uh, it's very interesting. It's kind of charming in a in a retro kind of way. It's it's one of the last big NFL events that probably feels like the NFL felt 40 or 50 years ago. You know, it's, uh, the stadium is bare bones, aluminum bench seating. Uh, people just mingle, you know, you have to have a credential, but you, if, if Andy Reed is here and I want to go sit next to Andy Reed and say, hi, I can do that. There's no PR guy, you know, shooing me away or anything like that. You see, you just walk around and you see people, uh, coaches that have been here before that are with other teams, scouts, agents are everywhere. Um, you can talk to the players on the field after practice. Uh, it's, it's kind of a low-key setting. There's a lot more media, though, than a decade ago. Like everything else, you know, it's become the NFL Network televises it, and it's uh, – you know, it's it's a bigger scale thing than it used to be, but it's a small city. There's a couple bars uh, that agents and team people tend to congregate at at night, and I dutifully hit both of them last night just to make sure, you know, Doug Peterson wasn't dancing on a tabletop or something. Um, you know, and you uh, listen to agents bitch about how the team won't give – 
their clients uh, the star billing and and treatment that they deserve <laughs> and uh you know you hear some whispers about uh you know they they're talking to this guy or that guy about free agency and you know it's uh it's a deal i mean it's uh it's 3 days and it's uh everybody leaves and i didn't realize this when i first signed up to do this nobody stays for the game <laughs> The scouts stay for the game, but the media access cuts off on Thursday, and uh, and all the coaches go home, certainly by Thursday. <laughs> and there's nobody here at the end of the week except for the really hardcore personnel evaluators who have to stay and watch the game. <laughs> so it's mostly about these practices and about uh, schmoozing, basically. Now, does bu- does bu- you mentioned the agents and, and obviously some of the personnel that are down there. Does business get done at the Senior Bowl at all? I mean, will uh, – you know, Howie Roseman be sitting down with Jason Peters' agent, uh, you know, Jason Kelsey's agent, any of this stuff? Uh, it could be. We don't see a lot of that. I mean, they could, you know, they'll go to a restaurant or something like that. They won't do that at the 50-yard line. Right. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that's how, that's how all the – that's the, the combine, this event, you know, that that's how these things get done, you know. Um I, shockingly, even as terribly illegal as it is, I'm sure agents for pending free agents from other teams probably get some sort of idea of the Eagles' possible interest at an event like this, you know? I can't believe uh, that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting deal, and it's, you have, like, all these uh, out-of-work coaches who show up kind of, glad-handing and trying to renew contacts and, uh, you know, look for somebody who might have a line on a job. Hmm, That's got to be awkward. That's something the late Jim Johnson said one time. Uh, We were talking to him when he was thinking about, you know, how much longer he wanted to coach before he got sick, of Mm -hmm. course. And uh, Jim said, you know, I like doing this, but if something were to happen here and I would lose this job, I'm not going to go down to the senior bowl and stand (laughs) around and, and hope somebody hires me anymore you know i'm past that and uh you know i've seen i've seen guys uh rick mentor who was the eagles linebackers coach yeah. under chip kelly i saw him yesterday and i think rick's looking for a job you know uh, for, did he used to play for the panthers or no rick mentor no that's another guy i'm afraid yeah okay. um it's interesting because it like what you're describing sounds a lot more like you know, the way people romanticize our job than, like, what 95% of our jobs oh, yeah. usually is. Yeah, it's not I mean, <laughs> nearly as regimented as, like I said, there's no PR people. That's so all, there's yeah. no, 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 you can't go here, or no, no, you can't talk to this person. There are time constraints, and there are other people that want to talk. And it's really, like, I was trying to talk to Brian Dawkins yesterday, and, you know, Brian Dawkins knows everybody in the league, and everybody was glad to see him, so... I got in like two questions in 10 minutes because he was hugging and, and, you know, fist bumping and, and chatting about kids and stuff with everybody in the room. But there was nobody to tell me that I couldn't talk to Brian. Right. Hawkins. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause like, I, that was like one of my big culture shocks when I first started covering baseball, my first spring training, because my only real exposure to, uh, you know, professional access before that had been, you know, Monday, Thursdays and Sundays with the Eagles. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was interning for Spadaro and like it was spring training is very much like you're describing. I mean, you've, you've covered spring. Yeah, training. I've been there. Yeah. It's been a long time, but yeah, you're exactly right. That's what it's like. It's like spring training. You're in a warm weather city 
and people are just it's kind of a the surroundings can be kind of dumpy mm-hmm. frankly at lad people stadium and you're just you know you're it's hardcore football people is baseball you know in spring training mm-hmm. it's hardcore baseball people and you're just kind of hanging around and you're all kind of you're all kind of like there's some camaraderie because you're all united by the fact that you're stuck in mobile yes exactly yeah it's uh it's it's a decent little town. It's on a big bay. Uh, there's good seafood, but there's really not, you know, it's not a place of glittering beaches. It's not, you know, a big city. Uh, there aren't great sights to be seen. It's just, uh, you know, it's a place for business here. It really is. Here's a trivia question for you. Which 2008 Philly spent his off-seasons in Mobile? Uh, boy, a lot of great baseball players have come from Mobile. The Hank Aaron Stadium is here. Oh, um, really? I did not know that. But it's not Hank Aaron. Uh, which which year did you say? Two thousand and eight. Two thousand and eight, Philly, Mobile. Ew, boy, I I have no idea. J. C. Romero, believe it or not. Well, see, I wouldn't have gotten that. No, yeah. no. Uh, I think Mobile is there a Mobile Shores? I think that's actually where he yes. is. Yeah, but this was years ago. This was a huge. Uh, I think McCovey might have been from here, and Mays maybe too at some point lived in this area before he became a big. Uh, you know, it was a big, uh, big producer of baseball talent at one point. Now it's football, though. Everybody hears about the Crimson Tide. So, do you can you get any feel for what specifically the Eagles are are looking at, or are they kind of? Is this kind of just? You know, you're putting your draft board together at this point and, and evaluating. Yeah, everybody. at this point, you're looking at everything. And with the Eagles, really, I mean, everything is on the table except for quarterback. I mean, yes, you certainly need through free agency and the draft huge upgrade wide receiver and corner. But you're not going to just look at those two areas. You're certainly going to look at edge rushers, which mm-hmm. there was evidence yesterday that they were very involved in that. Who are they looking? Uh, uh, what, what edge rushers are there? Do you know off the top of your head? There's a whole bunch, including this guy from uh, Villanova, huh. who's uh, he's in my my sidebar today. Uh, Tano, and I can't really pronounce his last name. It's an African name, Passanio or something well, like that. He'll fit that. right in with the Eagles locker room because <laughs> I, I can't pronounce like yeah. half of their names. You know they're going to draft him just because his name's hard to spell and pronounce. <laughs> um, huge guy, almost six seven. Uh, gigantic hands, gigantic arms, wingspan, uh, grew up in Ambler. Parents are African immigrants who met in graduate school somewhere, uh, was underweight uh, in, in high school, ended up going to Villanova, very good student, uh, developed there slowly, but could probably go as high as like the third round. I know the Eagles did talk to him yesterday, and there are a lot of guys like that. That's another thing about the Senior Bowl, Dave, is if, you, if you're an agent and you have a really top 10 solid lock prospect, maybe you don't send him here mm-hmm. because the only thing that can happen here for a guy like that is for him to get outplayed by some guy from Eastern Washington. You know, it's, <laughs> this is more for the guys that need to show something to the NFL. And also, because it is the senior bowl, you have to have graduated. And there are a few junior-eligible guys who have actually graduated who can come here. But 
by and large, the huge cache of junior-eligible talent that tends to dominate the top of the draft isn't here. <laughs> you know? yeah. So the edge rushers, by way, well, this is a long way of answering your question, the edge rushers that they talk to are probably more second, third, fourth-round guys, but that's probably where the Eagles are looking for an edge rusher mm-hmm. in this draft. You know, I, you'll take, if there's a great one there when you draft in the first round, maybe you have to take him, but you'd rather probably address that later if you had your druthers. What do you think? So the one thing about Eagles and defensive ends, and Brandon Graham kind of saved this a little bit after a couple after a slow start. But you look at Jerome McDougal, uh, mm-hmm. you know Marcus Smith. They haven't had a, they haven't had great success. I feel like, and this is just anecdotal. Maybe I'm missing something. But um, you know, yeah, Trent Cole was a that's you know, right bolt of lightning in the fifth round out of Cincinnati. Yeah, I mean they're two guys who turned out to be one of the greats of the franchise, but. You're right. They have not. Uh, that's one of the positions, and there's several, where they have not uh, done a great job. Do you think that would affect their strategy? Strategy? Ugh, excuse me. Strategy at all? Like if it's a, I mean, let's say there's it's a deep cornerback draft, which everyone says. You know, do you mm-hmm. have do you have more margin for error at cornerback than picking at a position that you have historically not evaluated well? Well, they haven't evaluated corner very well either. Yeah, you're right. Curtis Marshall on line two. The last starting quality corner they they drafted and kept, uh, by using that wording I'm avoiding, Eric Rowe, Mm -hmm. uh, was uh, Lito Shepard and Sheldon Brown in 2002. (laughs) They haven't, you know, they've been terrible at getting corners since then. They've had to go to free agency every few years to try to find corners. Uh, You know, so... Again, I think they're, they have a new personnel operation headed by Joe Douglas, and their idea is that they're going to be better at these things. But, but yeah, I think corner is a very good – that's why I wrote about Tredavious White today uh, from LSU. Uh, I think corner, if you're, if you're an Eagles fan and you're looking for what's most likely in the first round, that's a good place at 14 or 15 to find a difference maker in this draft. It's a defensive draft, a lot of really good, probably four, five, six first-round-ish kind of corners. And, you know, they're not all going to be gone by 14 or 15. Right. So, you know, that if I had to – I mean, it's right now we're just throwing yeah. uh, darts at the wall, but the draft is so far away. But if I had to start somewhere, that's where I would start. Do you uh you mentioned your sidebar which you can find on philly.com uh are you working on anything you want to you want to pimp out there to the uh listening public Well we've got like I said we've got Howie and Joe today and I'm also going to write at some point this week about Hassan Reddick the uh Temple linebacker mm-hmm. interesting guy uh, edge rusher at Temple probably not big enough to be an edge rusher in the NFL so they're playing him as an actual inside linebacker here this week which is something he hasn't done much of. He has great size as an inside linebacker, about 6'3", 237. Um, if he can pick that up, and I don't think anybody's going to draft him real high, you know, trying to change positions like that. But if he can pick that up, uh, you know, he seems like a really bright, smart uh, guy who, who has all the other good qualities. So I'll be writing about him at some point and, and there's a lot of small school guys. Uh, there's a, a, a lineman from Kutztown. There's a, a guy uh, 
from uh, Paulsboro who went to Bucknell, who's here. And, and again, those are the guys that this is really for. Mm-hmm. Just as Carson Wentz was the story last year, you know, it, it's you get to see these small school guys block and run patterns against the guys from Alabama and Florida and LSU, which you just don't get a chance to do in any other setting, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's the value for the NFL personnel evaluators, and that's kind of one of the things that I'll be tracking as we go forward. Well, let's uh, let you get out there and and uh, and track away. And track, yes. We'll uh, appreciate you uh, checking in, and I hope uh, I hope Howie fills it up for you today. Boy, I hope so too, because I've uh, I'm pretty tired. <laughs> All right, Les. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you, Dave. You Take care. It. And let's go right over to Keith Pompey, who's going to catch us up on these crazy 76ers. Well, here he is, Keith Pompey, the man of the hour, uh, a guy who reminds me of the point in time at which I started covering the Phillies. I feel like it's a lot like where the Sixers are at right now, maybe a couple of years behind, but it, it's a real there's a real buzz with this team, and that's kind of what I walked into in 2008 with the Phillies. Uh, Keith, how much more fun is it this year uh, actually covering a relevant team? Hey, it's completely different. I mean, even like going into the locker room, before we were walking in the locker room, we're like, okay, here come these idiots. Where are they <laughs> going to ask for the, the losing streak? Now they're like, hey, fellas, what's up? <laughs> you know, so it's completely different. It's different. And, you know, going to game four, you just knew they were going to lose, you know, and you're like, I hope my story doesn't sound like yesterday's story. Now it's like, you know, wow, this game is interesting. There's a lot of storylines. So it's completely different, completely different. So from your vantage point, what they've won 9 out of 12 now. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. They are fresh off. I didn't even watch the game because, frankly, you know, I'm still the Fairweather Joel Embiid guy where if he's not playing, I'm not really all that interested in watching this team. I figured – I figured that score would have made a lot, of, lot more sense the other way around. Um, what is the difference with this team? I mean, you can't ignore the fact that they started winning right around the time they shook up the point guard position a little bit. But then Sergio Rodriguez, uh, you know, last night ha- had a pretty big game, and he's maddening to watch. Um, but what, what do you see? What, what is the number one besides Embiid? What, what is the reason why this team is playing so well right now? You know, I honestly do really, I think that night was a a time, and, and like you said, besides Embiid, I think Brown is playing the players that he really wants to play. I mean, I think in the past it was, you know, for whatever reason, you know, maybe you have to shop someone or, 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 or maybe it's just like injuries or what have you. But I just feel like last night and when Embiid played simply, you have defensive-minded players on the floor basically embody their coach, you know what I mean? And that's the reason why they're winning. And, like, you know, last night, Dalu Okafor didn't play, so Nerlens Noel got to start. Mm-hmm. That enabled um, a Rashawn Holmes to come in as a reserve. And those two guys, you know, they were they were the headliners. I mean, they Noel had, what, 19.3 blocks. Rashawn Holmes, he had, he had 18 points, 11 in his first four minutes. 11 of Noel's points came in the fourth quarter. So, you know, this guy, they were the two headliners, and I think that their center play has been the thing that has, you know, driven them this season. All right, we'll talk about those two guys in just one second, but you mentioned the defense, and mm-hmm. I, I was looking over the box score 
trying to figure out how the heck they won this game the way they did. And they got they got out rebounded. Uh, you know they were minus what like five or six on the offensive glass, minus three on the defensive glass. They gave up 110 points, but then you get to turnovers, and they were plus 12 in turnover margin. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that is that Brett Brown? Is that what is that? I mean, you have a bunch of scrappy players. You know these guys are they go all out. Um, it is kind of sort of Brett Brown. I mean. But, but, again, it's like the certain type of players. Like you have Nerlens Noel who had, what, he had five steals, you know, for a center. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that, that that's saying a lot. No, he had two steals. I'm sorry. He had two steals for a center. He had five assists. But then you have Robert Covington. I mean, it just seems like these guys, they anticipate a lot now. You anticipate a lot. If you miss it, you look foolish. But last mm-hmm. night, you know, they, they, they were right on the ball. They were right on the spot. So, I mean, I just think that is what Brett Brown wants to do. That's all he ever talked about beforehand is that, you know, I wanted a team with a defensive identity. And here's something else I think that we need to to point out. Like, you may look at a T.J. McConnell. You may look at a Robert Covington. You may even look at a Nerlens Noel and say, you know, some people have their own opinion of them. But these are all like NBA-type guys. Regardless of what you say, they are better players than what the Sixers had in the past when they were bringing in these guys on 10-day deals. So I think that with better talent, and the talent's only going to get better down the road, but you have more talented players now, so they're able to do the things that Brett Brown really wanted them to do in the past. Yeah, man, you hit on something that I was thinking about uh, before I called you. And, like, when you look at a lot of NBA teams that end up person onto the scene and, and making a little playoff run, uh, becoming relevant again. At least for the way I look at it, they tend to add the stars first. You know, like the Warriors had, you know, Steph and, and um, Clay Thompson, obviously. And then they added Andre Iguodala after that, added Marie Spates, yada, yada, yada. The Sixers, it's almost like they're like they, – they got the depth already. You know, like you look at – you look at uh, I mean, even Sharich, like he's been a guy where – I mean, he's going to be at least that player throughout his career, a guy that you can leave out there on the court uh, with the second unit, with Covington, with, uh, you know, McConnell. I mean, like in a perfect world, when they get good, that team that beat the Clippers last night is your second team. Uh, But the fact that they already have that team and that team is showing that they can, you know, hang when the stars aren't in there. Now, once you put the stars in, you know, you add a couple shooting guards, put Embiid in there, uh, and then Simmons, obviously. I I mean, it's almost like a a ready-made team. Is that is that overstating it? No, nah, you, you're right. You're right. It's, it's almost like a ready-made team. I mean, that's what they're doing. And, and it's, funny, it's funny that it's finally happening because when Hinky was saying that I'm trying to find these diamonds, diamonds in the rough, people were looking at him like he was crazy because he couldn't find any. Mm-hmm. But then it just seems like, you know, you have a couple guys who are sticking, like the McConnells, the Covingtons, you know, um, I don't know what, what Gerald Henderson is going to do long term. You know, he, he has like a, um, a basically a two-year deal, but next year only a million is guaranteed, so he can they can let him go. But it's just one of these things where, you know, the, the Sixers are finding these type of players, and it's only going to benefit them. Well, you mentioned uh, Gerald Henderson, and, and the thing mm-hmm. that has stuck out even throughout this 9 out of 12 streak, uh, Sixers, by the way, five and a half games out of a playoff spot. <laughs> I 
can't believe we're even talking about that, even though there's four teams in between them and, and the Bulls. Um, I mean, they're on pace for 30 wins this year, and I think they only won 34 uh, with that Giroux Holiday, uh, Evan Turner, um, you know, that last Thaddeus Young team before the tank. So it's – I mean, it's just remarkable – what has happened with this team now the one disparity uh as i mentioned has been the three-point shooting and the outside shooting you saw that last night the clippers were bomb were bombing from downtown 18 for 34 i mean that's a 529 clip and the sixers of course checked in with their usual 10 for 29 345 clip um it, it seems to me if you just add even one guy who's like a you know uh now i know neither one of these guys normally shoots like they did last night, but but a Jamal Crawford or a, uh, you know, Austin Rivers. I mean, it seems like if you just add that one guy to, to you know, Embiid, especially when you have Simmons on the other side, like, that could be all this team needs to be, you know, 500. Yeah, you're exactly right. And especially, I mean, think about it. Here's a guy like Ersan Ilvasova. You know, he played on five teams in the past year and a half. But he can shoot. So, the fact that he can come here and he can shoot, his value goes up because he's playing with Embiid, and that opens things up for Embiid. So, you know, if they go out there and they can get, like like you said before, a two-guard or, or, or another three who can really, like, stretch the defense, I mean, you're right. They can become a 500-ball club. I mean, and, and the thing is, as, as long as they keep winning, and we all know that they have a lot of cap space, mm. there's going to be someone who says, you know what? I really like what Joe Embiid is doing. And Ben Simmons, I love the way he passes the ball. He'll get me to rock. And but, you know, uh but but Embiid will create the space for me. I won't have to worry about people, you know, trying to double team me. So, you know, I, I think that if they keep doing what they're doing, I mean, these free agents this summer, like the crop is gonna get better, a better selection than what they have been getting in the past. Have you heard have you heard any names that they might even just you know circumstantially that that might be in play for them come the summer um or anybody just from you looking at it on paper that might make sense and might be a guy who would be willing to to come to this this team yeah the one guy who really sticks out the names that sticks out is is kyle lowry yeah but the only thing you got you to realize what they're going to do with ben simmons but he's a guy who who it kind of sort of makes sense just because of the relationship he has with Colangelo, you know. Um, he's kind of like a scoring guard, so to speak. So you compare him, you know, with with uh, Ben Simmons, you know, depending on how you want to use him. So that's one name that I hear. Dude, I've been I've been blowing the, the Kyle Lowry home for like two months now. I love Kyle Lowry. And he fits the, his – he really fits with the uh, the ethos of this team. I mean, he's a tough little bugger. You know, uh, getting up there in age. But what have you heard about his relationship with the Raptors and, and whether, you know, the NBA is so crazy with, with how the economics work and, and what players actually use to make their decisions on. Do you get any feel um, or sense for, for what his decision-making process is going to be like? Well, you know, uh, the thing about him with the Raptors, like he loves it in Toronto. I mean, so so that's, uh, that's something that, you know, it could be hard. And, and also, you know, he and DeMar DeRozan have right. a really good relationship. But I, I don't think there's anything against the Raptors. I think that the fact that he has a great relationship with Brian Colangelo, the fact that 
It will give them an opportunity to come home and play in front of family and friends. And also the fact that the Sixers are going to have more money to give them than the Raptors will, you know, it makes it really intriguing. And, you know, it's going to be his final contract, so to speak. Like you said, getting up there in age, this could be the final time that he'll possibly get a huge payday. So, you know, when you factor all those things in, you know, you have to say that, you know, I have to really give it a, a, a you know, a, a lot of consideration and let's just see what happens. And then another thing is, yes, Toronto is hot. But if we talked about Embiid and we talked about Ben Simmons, you know, who's to say Kyle may say, well, in a couple of years, they can be like how the Raptors were, how we improved. So, you know, it, it's just something that, I mean, I'm pretty sure the Raptors are going to try to um, tell them, like, hey, you know, we can go to the championship maybe next year. We can do this. We can do that if you stay. But I'm pretty sure, like, Brian's going to make, you know, some strides to uh, to bring him back home to Philadelphia. But I feel like you just hit on a critical point there, and it's an interesting one. And, it's cra- again, it's, sound- it's crazy that we're talking about it at this point. But, like, the Raptors are a good team, but they're not beating the Cavaliers. And their ceiling – I mean, they're kind of a conventional team where, like – like Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan are very good players, but they're not like transcendent players who are going to like have an unlimited ceiling. Like they're almost like the Hawks, you know, where like you knew the Hawks, you knew the Hawks were losing last year. Like they had a great regular two years ago. They had a reg- great regular season, but I mean, like they're just kind of a, they're, they're kind of a team with a ceiling, you know, and the Sixers for all their flaws that they still have, they, they, they do have one and potentially two pieces that, transcend anything that a team like the Hawks or the Raptors can bring to the table. And that's the fact that like you can't, there could be a time very soon where you just can't guard Joel Embiid, you know, like it's like, it's, it's a lot easier to shut down a DeMar DeRozan type uh, or hope that he has three bad games in a seven game series than Joel Embiid who, who, you know, I mean, you remember those Shaq teams. Uh, I'm not saying again, he's not a back to the basket physical player like Shaq was, but when you've got a guy with a skill set that just can't be stopped, you know, MJ, uh, you know, AI. I mean, that Sixers 2000 team is, is, is a good example just because of the type of talent that Allen Iverson has. It's the same type of talent jo- that Joel Embiid has in the sense that there might not be one player in the NBA who can stop it. And, and that all of a sudden might give you a better chance. I mean, like the Sixers might have a better chance to actually win an NBA title than the Raptors do at this point, you know? Yeah, you're exactly right. And just like you said, it's, it's like the Raptors. And not only that, if you think about it, the Raptors are a team that loses players in free agency, you know, just because of, you know, other people are going to give them more money. So you're, you're looking at they have the two all-stars, but they don't have anything else. I mean, and again, I'm not knocking the players they have, but what I mean is it's just like, you know, you, you have, you like if the team goes as Kyle Lowry, and DeMar DeRozan goes. You know, if they, like you said, if they have bad games, right. the Raptors are done. You know, so, yeah, you know, and, and, and as good as they are, you know, they're not, and, and, you know, DeMar DeRozan is improving, but they're not going to be on the level of Joel Embiid. So I agree wholeheartedly with everything you just said. Well, let's talk about that. Finally, let's talk about that second potentially transcendent piece in Ben Simmons. You had a story on Philly.com. Uh, yesterday, I read it yesterday. I don't know if it was published yesterday or the day before, but uh, Ben Simmons, uh, everything looks good with his comeback. His foot 
uh, as far as I could tell from your story, there's there's no no reason to worry anymore. Is it just about getting him back in a basketball shape at this point? Yeah, I think you know, like they won't come out and say it, but it's all about getting them back in in basketball shape, and they don't want to embarrass him. You know, right? Like the, the thing is, like the thing about like Brett Brown always says that before someone comes on a floor, like from an injury, and he was just about nervous as well a little bit that he wants that person to practice. And not just like, you know, one five on five. He wants them to go, like, you know, four to five, you know, hard scrimmages, you know, all out. But right now the way the schedule is, they're playing so many back-to-back to where the team really isn't practicing. And when they do practice, it's like film study, a, a light practice. But, you know, you don't want him to come back because there's going to be so much hype. There's going to be so much hoopla. You don't want him to come back and embarrass himself because he hasn't played in a while. So it has, you know, you have to do the conditioning, and they, they you know, he's he's the he's one of the franchise players. They just don't want to embarrass him. So that's where we are right now. I mean, that's that, that's it. Like, you know, if if he was in shape, I would really expect him to be playing. But he's not. He has to get back in the game shape, and and that's the reason why we're not seeing him. Do you get any sense? behind the scenes from, you know, Brett Brown or, or scouts or front office people or assistant coaches or, or teammates, what kind of anticipation level there is in the organization um, for Ben Simmons' return? And what, what kind of, do you get any sense for what kind of team they think they can be with him this year? Um, or do they just not know yet because they haven't seen enough of him in practice? I mean, yeah, I think it's – well, I, I think they have an idea of what he can be. I mean, you know, he's a you know, he's the type of player. He can make – he'll make his team better, um, you know, with, without shooting the ball because he's the type of guy, he's so unselfish, and, you know, his passes are all off the charts, so to speak, to whereas he can find teammates and get them in the right position. You know what I mean? But at the same time, I, I think that the, the Sixers, you know – Let's say, like, you know, Brian Colangelo didn't have a lot of success in Toronto. Now, he built that team, but he didn't have a lot of wins and losses success there. But he is a two-time, you know, general manager of the year. Um, he, he, he Executive of the year, rather. You know, he had a lot of success in Phoenix. You know, Brett Brown, you know, he was a part of four championship teams with the Spurs. So it, it's kind of like, you know, where most people in Philadelphia are looking at, like, yes, we're going to go straight to the championship. They have like a more realistic approach. You know what I mean? So they don't want to get too far ahead. And that's the reason why you notice after Brett Brown gets the win, he looks like he lost it. He lost. Mm. He doesn't celebrate. He doesn't do anything because he knows that, yes, this is great right now, but I'm trying to build a championship team and I'm several years away. So I think that when they look at Ben Simmons, it's like, yes, he's a great player, a great passer right now but we have to make him a great all-around player. I'm going to ask you about Ben Simmons' shooting in a second, but because you brought it up, Brett Brown, there was a lot of talk just even, I mean, before Christmas, a month month and a half ago, about, uh, especially earlier in the season when they were losing some of these close games, uh, you know, about what kind of coach he actually is. And you know, Mike Sealski, who does not join me today, but joins me most weeks, wrote a column, you know, a couple of weeks into the season saying, hey, you know, we really don't know what kind of coach Brett Brown is. It remains to be seen whether he's going to be the guy, especially with the transition in the front office. He's not, you know, he's not Brian Colangelo's guy. Is, is, has any of what we've seen over the last month 
so answered those questions and solidified his job status uh, moving forward? Or do you think is part of the reason why he looks so <laughs> weathered and, and stressed out even after wins, the fact that he knows he's got to, you know, he's got to keep doing this in order to, to assure himself of a job. Well, you know, I, I don't think that I, – I think that what he's doing now is, is basically helping him secure it. But at the same time, we have to be realistic. You know, the, the fact that the Sixers will, you know, Embiid will – excuse me, Okafor will, will – like, Nerlens Noel is the backup. Mm-hmm. But when Embiid doesn't play, typically Okafor plays. Mm-hmm. So, to me, it's like they're showcasing people on certain days. And with that being said, it's hard to base wins and losses on the coach. I think that when you base when when you judge them by wins and losses, it's when when MB plays. And you know they what did they won? They're, they're like what? Uh, they won like seven in a row when MB plays. Mm-hmm. So I think when when you factor in Brett Brown's strengths, you have to say that he's doing a great job because you know he inserted T.J. McConnell in the starting lineup. He, he inserted um, Nick Stauskas in the starting lineup. You know, so the starting lineup of Nick Stauskas, TJ, MB, Ersan, Ilovasova, and Robert Covington are 7-1. and one. That's Brett Brown's coaching. So I, I think that, you know, he should be fine. I mean, I think that he should be fine. I, w- I would hope so because even if you look past, you know, like you said, wins and losses with Embiid, just the way they're playing – defensively especially I mean whatever Brett Brown is preaching is getting through uh and the fact that Nerlens Noel has remained on board despite you know his clear dissatisfaction with his role and I mean this team plays it's fascinating to watch this team because they play with an energy that's a lot like a college team and and a lot of that comes from Embiid and McConnell as well um but it's it's kind of infectious to watch you know and the crowd is certainly into it. it it's one of those things where you, you just can't imagine them wanting – you couldn't imagine them thinking it a wise move to mess with that formula since everything Brett Brown s- has been talking about over the last three years seems to be, uh, you know, at least sinking into his players. Is that I mean, is that fair to say? Yeah, it's fair to say. But I, I do think that if they would struggle, like, you know, like early on, if they didn't have the success, then, you know, Brett Brown would, would still be on the hot seat. Right. You know. But I, I, I do think that since, you know, you can see, I mean, because, like, you know, you know you're around a team. Um, you can see Brett Brown's personality coming out in the team, mm-hmm. and they're winning. And, like, the guys who are, are producing are guys who he identified. Like, T.J. McConnell is a guy who he loves. Like, a lot of people said, he can't play. He mm-hmm. can't play. Brett, like, no, he can play. He's feisty. I like him. And, and now you're looking at him and T.J. McConnell – you know, he's playing at a high level, you know. So, you know, I think that – but if Brett would have struggled, he wouldn't have received the opportunity to say, hey, look at what I'm doing with T.J. McConnell. Yep. You know, so you know, so I think that's where we are right now. you gotta, you got you to do something, and he's, and he's done it. <laughs> All right, last question. You mentioned Ben Simmons shooting. One of the interesting mm-hmm. things about Joel Embiid's layoff is it may have – it may have helped him in the long run, given the fact that he could only sit around in some cases and shoot. And he seems to really uh, he seemed to really have taken advantage of that and developed a nice touch um, during his layoff. Is, uh, have you seen Simmons shoot at all? What has what has his 
uh, routine been like before he got the air cast off and everything? Do you think there's any chance that he comes back a better shooter? Uh, I know he's been working with, or at least he before he broke his foot, he was working with uh, that new shot doctor that they brought in. What do you know about his stroke and uh, where it's at now compared to where it was at when he was drafted? You know, it's kind of hard to say because, you know, you know, I, we really – I mean, he, he rarely shoots the ball. I mean, he rarely shot the ball before he came and you know, became a sixer. But what I will say is that, you know, you know, we'll see him when they open up the, the, the gym and we go in there for media availability. You always see him at the park court like basically going around the world with uh, Gerald Henderson and Sergio Rodriguez. But then, you know, he always comes back in that night with others, and he does like shooting drills and shooting sessions. So I will say that he's working, you know, around the clock now. If you look at his shot and you look at his form compared to other people, it's like, you know, there's some things that he has to tweak, you know, but the fact that the thing that really impresses me is that he's coming back. You know, he's not the type of guy like I'm putting in, you know, three hours a day early on. You know, he goes home and he's doing like two a day. Uh-huh. But in the second portion, it's all just on his shot. So, you know, it's probably going to take a while, but at the same time, he's putting in the work to get better. So now you got your you got your podcast where you're dropping this you're dropping knowledge like this every day. Uh, where do people find that, and and how has that been going for you? Is it something that you enjoy doing? Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. I mean, I I really like doing it. I mean, I like uh, having discussions like how you have on yours. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, because I mean, this is a real podcast, and I and I try to make mine real, and I try to make it to you know the point where you know it's. it's unfiltered you know the mm. Sixers may not always like what I say but I'm saying it you know I'm, I'm not ripping people but I'm just trying to be real I'm trying to be true but you can catch it on iTunes and you can go to audio boom um you know um but you know subscribe to iTunes and body audio boom and it's called locked on Sixers and I come to you five days a week um and 10 to 15 minutes it's not long but it's, I come to you five days a week Locked on Sixers, and that's audioboom.com or iTunes? Yep, yep. You can subscribe on audioboom.com or iTunes. And if you don't want to do that, you can go to the philly.com, and, and we run it, like I said, five days a week on philly.com. Awesome, man. Well, listen, I appreciate you, uh, appreciate you branching out and giving us some time. Thanks for having me on, Myrtle Beecher. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. I'll see you. All right. All right, peace. Thank you.